Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. November 13. On this date in history, in the year 2020, Kim Ng named the first female Major League Baseball general manager. Veteran front office official Kim Ng breaks several glass ceilings simultaneously when she is named general manager of the Miami Marlins. Ng is the first woman and first person of East Asian descent to lead a Major League Baseball front office, as well as the first female GM in the history of North American professional men's sports. Ng, the daughter of two Americans of Chinese descent, played softball at the University of Chicago and wrote her college thesis on the effects of Title IX. She has spent her entire career in Major League Baseball, beginning with an internship for the Chicago White Sox. After six years with the White Sox, she worked in the offices of the American League before the youngest assistant GM in the league in 1998, when she was hired by the New York Yankees. Her talent was widely discussed during her time with the Yankees, who won three World Series in her four years in New York. In 2000, Yankees superstar Derek Jeter presented her with a Women in Sports and Events Award. She soon moved on to become vice president and assistant general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, where she spent nine years before moving to the Major League Baseball front office. Between 2005 and 2020, Ng reportedly interviewed for at least five vacant GM positions and was often referred to as a GM-in-waiting. Nonetheless, she did not receive an offer, even as young and relatively unproven male executives like Theo Epstein received acclaim and lucrative jobs across the league. It was Jeter, now the chief executive and part owner of the Marlins, who finally picked Ng to lead a team's baseball operations. There's an edge. You can't be it if you can't see it, Ng said at a press conference announcing her appointment. I suggest to them, now you can see it. November 14. On this date in history, in the year 1851, Herman Melville publishes Moby Dick. Moby Dick is now considered a great classic of American literature and contains one of the most famous opening lines in fiction, Call Me Ishmael. Initially, though, the book about Captain Ahab and his quest to catch a giant whale was a flop. Its author, Herman Melville, was born in New York City in 1819. As a young man, he spent time in the Merchant Marines, the U.S. Navy, and on a whaling ship in the South Seas. In 1846, he published his first novel, Typee, a romantic adventure based on his experiences in Polynesia. The book was a success and a sequel. Omu was published in 1847. Three more novels followed with mixed critical and commercial results. Melville's sixth book, Moby Dick, 
was first published in October 1851 in London in three volumes titled The Whale, and then in the U.S. a month later. Melville had promised his publisher an adventure story similar to the popular earlier works, but instead Moby Dick was a tragic epic influenced by part of Melville's friend and Pittsfield, Massachusetts neighbor Nathaniel Hawthorne, whose novels include The Scarlet Letter. After Moby Dick's disappointing reception, Melville continued to produce novels, short stories like Bartleby, and poetry, but writing wasn't paying the bills. In 1865, he returned to New York to work as a customs inspector, a job he held for 20 years. Melville died in 1891, largely forgotten by the literary world. By the 1920s, scholars had rediscovered his work, particularly Moby Dick, which would eventually become a staple of high school reading lists across the United States. Billy Budd, Melville's final novel, was published in 1924, 33 years after his death. November 15. On this date in history, in the year 1956, Elvis makes his movie debut in Love Me Tender. Love Me Tender, featuring the singer Elvis Presley, is his big screen debut. Premieres in New York City at the Paramount Theater. Set in Texas following the American Civil War, the film, which co-starred Edward Richard Egan and Deborah Paget, featured Elvis as Clint Reno, the younger brother of a Confederate soldier. Originally titled The Reno Brothers, the movie was renamed Love Me Tender before its release, after a song of the same name that Reno sings during the film. Presley, who became one of the biggest icons in entertainment history, sang in-the-box office hit Love Me Tender as well as the majority of the 33 movies, 31 features and two theatrically released concert documentaries he made in his career. Despite the commercial success of his films, many were considered formulaic and forgettable, and critics have argued that Elvis never achieved his full potential as an actor. Elvis Aaron Presley who was born on January 8, 1935, in Tupelo, Mississippi, began his music career with Sun Records in Memphis in 1954. In March 1956, he released his first album for RCA, Elvis Presley, which went to the top spot on Billboard's pop album chart and launched him on his way to superstardom. In late March of that same year, Presley had his first Hollywood screen test for a movie called The Rainmaker. He failed to get the role which went to Burt Lancaster and instead began shooting Love Me Tender that August. Soon after, on September 9, 1956, Elvis made the first of three appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, and the popular variety show received record-breaking ratings. When Elvis made his third appearance on the program, the TV censors infamously allowed him to be shown only from the waist up for fear his swiveling hips would scandalize the nation. In November 1957, Presley's third film, Jailhouse Rock, opened in theaters across the United States. The movie, which is considered by many critics to be one of his best, contains the now-iconic Cell Block dance production number, choreographed by Elvis and set to his song Jailhouse Rock. Elvis's fourth movie, King Creole, was released in July 1958 and is also considered a standout, earning him some of the strongest reviews of his acting career. Co-starring Walter Matthau, Carolyn Jones, Vic Morrow, and Dean Jagger, 
King Creole was helmed by Casablanca's Michael Curtis and based on a Harold Robbins novel called A Stone for Danny Fisher. The King of Rock and Roll's eight film, Blue Hawaii, debuted in 1961 and ushered in an era of Presley movies featuring lightweight plots, pretty girls, and multiple music numbers. Among his other films during this time are Fun in Alcapulco, Viva Las Vegas, Clambake, and The Trouble with Girls. Elvis's 29th movie, a western called Charo, in which he sported a beard, was released in 1968 and is the one film in which he doesn't sing on camera. Presley's final feature film was Change of Habit, in which he portrayed a doctor and Mary Tyler Moore played a nun. After suffering from health problems and drug dependency, Elvis died at the age of 42 on August 16, 1977, at Greenland, his home in Memphis, Tennessee. November 16. On this date in history, in the year 1959, The Sound of Music premieres on Broadway. Did the young Austrian nun named Maria really take to the hills surrounding Salzburg to sing spontaneously of her love of music? Did she comfort herself with thoughts of copper kettles? And did she swoon to her future husband's song about an alpine flower while the creeping menace of Nazism spread across Central Europe? No, the real-life Maria von Trapp did none of those things. She was indeed a former nun, and she did indeed marry Count Georg von Trapp and become stepmother to his large brood of children, but nearly all of the particulars she related in her 1949 book, The Story of the Trapp Family Singers, were ignored by the creators of the Broadway musical her memoir inspired. And while the liberties taken by the show's writers, Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss, and by its composer and lyricist Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II, caused some consternation to the real Maria von Trapp and to her stepchildren, according to many later reports, whose liberties made the sound of music a smash success from the very night its Broadway opening on November 16, 1959. With a creative team made up of Broadway legends and a star as enormously popular and bankable as Mary Martin, it was no surprise that The Sound of Music drew enormous advanced sales. But audiences continued to flock to The Sound of Music despite sometimes tepid reviews, like the one in the New York Times that said the show lacked the final exultation that marks the difference between a masterpiece and a well-produced musical entertainment. Reviewer Brooks Atkinson did, however, single out the affecting beauty of the music from The Sound of Music as saving it from a story verging on sticky. Sticky or no, The Sound of Music was an instant success, and numerous songs from its score, including Do Re Mi, My Favorite Things, and Climb Every Mountain, quickly entered the popular canon. Indeed, the original cast recording of The Sound of Music was nearly as big a phenomenon as the show itself. Recorded just a week after the show's premiere on this day in 1959 and released by Columbia Records, the album shot to the top of the Billboard album charts. November 17. 
On this date in history, in the year 1968, TV viewers become outraged as the football game is cut off to air Heidi. The Oakland Raiders score two touchdowns in nine seconds to beat the New York Jets, and no one sees it because they're watching the movie Heidi instead. With just 65 seconds to play, NBC switched off the game in favor of its previously scheduled programming, a made-for-TV version of the children's story about a young girl and her grandfather in the Alps. Viewers were outraged, and they complained so vociferously that network execs learned a lesson they'll never forget. Whatever you do, one said, you better not leave the NFL football game. The game between the Jets and the Raiders was already shaping up to be a classic. It featured two of the league's best teams and ten future Hall of Fame players. By the game's last minute, the two teams had traded the lead eight times. The game's intensity translated into an unusual number of penalties and timeouts, which meant that it was running a bit long. With a little more than a minute left to play, the Jets kicked a 26-yard field goal that gave them a 32-29 lead. After the New York kickoff, the Raiders returned the ball to their own 23-yard line. What happened after that will go down in football history. Raiders quarterback Daryl LaMonica threw a 20-yard pass to halfback Charlie Smith. A face mask penalty moved the ball to the Jets' 43, and on the next play, LaMonica passed again to Smith, who ran it all the way for a touchdown. The Raiders took the lead 32-36. to Then the Jets fumbled the kickoff, and Oakland's Preston Riddlehuber managed to grab the ball and run it two yards for another touchdown. Oakland had scored twice in nine seconds, and the game was over. They'd won 43-32. to But nobody outside the Oakland Coliseum actually saw any of this because NBC went to commercial right after the Jets kicked off and never came back. Instead, they did what they'd been planning to do for weeks. At 7 p.m., they began to broadcast a brand new version of Heidi, a film they were sure would win them high ratings during November sweeps. Before the game began, network execs had talked about what they'd do if the game ran over its scheduled time and they decided to go ahead with the movie no matter what. So, that's what NBC programmer Dick Klein did. I waited and waited, he said, and later, I heard nothing. We came up to that magic hour, and I thought, well, I haven't been given any counter order, so I've got to do what we agreed to do. NBC execs had actually changed their minds, and were trying to get in touch with Klein to tell him to leave the game on, until it was over. But all the telephone lines were busy, Thousands of people were calling the network to urge programmers to air Heidi as scheduled, and thousands more were calling to demand that the football game stay on the air. Football fans grew even more livid when NBC printed the results of the game at the bottom of the screen 20 minutes after the game ended. So many irate fans called NBC that the network's switchboard blew. Undeterred, people started calling the telephone company, the New York Times, and the NYPD, whose emergency lines they clogged for hours. Shortly after the Heidi debacle, the NFL inserted a clause into its TV contracts that guaranteed that all games would be broadcast completely in their home markets. For its part, NBC installed a new phone, the Heidi phone, in the control room that had its own exchange and switchboard. Such a disaster 
the network assured its viewers, would never be allowed to happen again. November 18. On this date in history, in the year 1883, railroads create the first time zones. At exactly noon on this day, American and Canadian railroads begin using four continental time zones to end the confusion of dealing with thousands of local times. The bold move was emblematic of the power shared by the railroad companies. The need for continental time zones stemmed directly from the problems of moving passengers and freight over the thousands of miles of rail line that covered North America by the 1880s. Since human beings had first begun keeping track of time, they set their clocks to the local movement of the sun. Even as late as the 1880s, most towns in the U.S. had their own local time, generally based on high noon, or the time when the sun was at its highest point in the sky. As railroads began to shrink the travel time between cities from days or months to mere hours, however, these local times became a scheduling nightmare. Railroad timetables in major cities listed dozens of different arrival and departure times for the same train, each linked to a different local time zone. Efficient rail transportation demanded a more uniform timekeeping system. Rather than turning to the federal government of the United States and Canada to create a Northern American system of time zones, the powerful railroad companies took it upon themselves to create a new time code system. The companies agreed to divide the continent into four time zones. The dividing lines adopted were very close to the ones we still use today. Most Americans and Canadians quickly embraced the new time zones, since railroads were often their lifeblood and main link with the rest of the world. However, it was not until 1918 that Congress officially adopted the railroad time zones and put them under the supervision of the Interstate Commerce Commission. November 19. On this date in history in the year 1975, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest opens in theaters. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a film about a group of patients at a mental institution, opens in theaters. Directed by Milos Forman and based on a 1962 novel of the same name by Ken Kesey, the film starred Jack Nicholson and was co-produced by the actor Michael Douglas. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest went on to become the first film in four decades to win in all five of the major Academy Award categories, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Picture. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest marked Jack Nicholson's first Oscar win, although the actor, who was born on April 22, 1937, in Neptune, New Jersey, had already received four other Academy Award nominations by that time. Nicholson's first nomination, in the Best Supporting Actor category, came for his performance as an alcoholic lawyer in 1969's Easy Rider, co-starring Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda. He earned his next Oscar nomination for Best Actor for 1970's Five Easy Pieces, in which he played a drifter. For 1973's The Last Detail, Nicholson earned another Best Actor Oscar nomination. His fourth Best Actor Oscar nomination came for his performance as Detective Jake Gitz in director Roman Polanski's Chinatown in 1974. 
In One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Nicholson played Randall McMurphy, a convict who pretends to be crazy so he can be sent to a mental institution to avoid prison work detail. Once at the asylum, McMurphy encounters a vast cast of inmates and clashes memorably with the authoritative Nurse Ratched. During the 1980s, Nicholson, known for his charisma and devilish grin, appeared in such films as Stanley Kubrick's The Shining in 1980, which was based on a Stephen King horror novel. The Postman Always Rings Twice in 1981 with Jessica Lange. Reds in 1981 which was directed by Warren Beatty and earned Nicholson another Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination. Terms of Endearment in 1983, for which he collected a second Best Actor Oscar. Pritzi's Honor in 1985, for which he received another Best Actor Oscar nomination. The Witches of Eastwick in 1987 with Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Ironweed in 1987, for which he took home yet another Best Actor Academy Award nomination, and Batman in 1989, in which he portrayed a villainous Joker. Nicholson's prolific film work in the 1990s included The Two Jakes in 1990, a sequel to Chinatown directed by Nicholson himself, the biopic Hoffa in 1992, and A Few Good Men in 1992, for which he earned another Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination. A Few Good Men features Tom Cruise and Demi Moore and includes the now-famous Nicholson line, You can't handle the truth. Nicholson won his third Best Actor Oscar for 1997's As Good As It Gets, which co-stars Helen Hunt and earned his 12th Academy Award nomination for his performance in 2002's About Schmidt. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for November 13 through November 19. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.